Let's pray. Gracious God, make us a new creation. Help us to see that for you to do that, you meet us right where we are, first and foremost. Give us the faith to let you into our hearts and our lives, that we may be changed from the inside. In Jesus' name, amen. Ah, January, everyone's favorite month, right? The time of year that many Americans resolve to do battle with their humanity. You know. For instance, you like, you like that? Uh, during the holidays, every time we, and following the holidays for weeks and weeks perhaps, Every time you walk by a box of chocolates or peanut M&Ms, we realize that the flesh is weak and we are engaged in a battle with our humanity. Or there may be bad habits to eliminate, aspirations that we have. Therefore, New Year's resolutions, right? So we might say, for instance, um, and so on January 1st, or second, I will henceforth work out every day, eat only vegetables, nuts, and legumes, become employee of the month, volunteer for five charities, begin my first novel, become a concert pianist, and so on, and so on. Now, uh, goal setting can be an effective tool, no doubt, but they've done studies on the success rates of New Year's resolutions, and here's Here's what happens to New Year's resolutions. You already know this already, I think, because we live it, don't we? Okay, year after year at the health clubs that I belong to, maybe you've had this experience, I notice a large influx of people in January, especially in early January. New Year's resolutions, I imagine. So I may have to wait in line for a machine uh, that I want or uh, even for a shower afterwards. But my grumbling is always alleviated by the very sure and certain knowledge that this is temporary. <laughs> Come February, the influx will recede faster than my hairline did 20 years ago. And indeed, this is what they've found in studies about New Year's resolutions. In a word, they don't work. But why? Is it because the flesh is weak or we're too idealistic? Well... In the end, for all the lovely attributes that any of us have, we are also finite creatures. We have warts, figuratively, and in some cases, literally. And as the Apostle Paul pointed out painfully in the book of Romans, and I quote, I do not understand my own actions. Are you ever there? I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want but, but I do the very thing I hate. <laughs> Simply put, it's not easy being human, is it? Often we feel powerless, and between our bondage to sin and our own mortality, we are relatively powerless. So our problem is way bigger than failing to show up at the gym in February. Resolutions based on 
I'd love to be this or I wish I were that, are not powerful enough levers usually for meaningful change. Like Allison suggested, change can only happen from the inside. Now be that as it may, people have been trying to turn their lives around for centuries. You know, we're not the first ones, right? And when someone inspired them to think positively and believe they could change, they'd show up in droves, right? Such was the case with John the Baptist, a fiery preacher and prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. John, in fact, lived on the edge of the wilderness, and, and, he, and he lived like it too. Locusts and wild honey for breakfast, anyone? John's message was, in fact, as simple as his diet. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. That's it. Now, the word repent means, you probably already know this, to turn your life around, do a 180. Easier said than done, huh? And that was why people flocked to hear him. Essentially, to be christened in baptism as a new person. It's all about repentance. But John here was not merely pitching his own version of, you know, hopeless New Year's resolutions. This wasn't mere self-improvement or wishful thinking. Repent, said John, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Okay, there's something else going on here. Other gospel writers refer to this as the kingdom of God. In Matthew, it's kingdom of heaven. Whoa, that's like God showing up at your house, so you better get cleaning. You better be good for goodness sake, right? If <laughs> the kingdom is right there, and God too, by extension. You may recall in the previous chapter in Matthew, and from last week's sermon, that King Herod was threatened by the new king, in town, Jesus, tragically so. So now John is saying that the kingdom of this new king is right here. It's right here. Repent, therefore, and bear fruit worthy of repentance. For the tree that does not bear good fruit will be cut down. And while I baptize with water, John said, the one who is coming after me is more powerful than I and will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. In fact, wheat and chaff, i.e. the worthy and the unworthy, will be separated and the chaff will be burned with unquenchable fire, said John. Okay, so John the Baptist is playing his part in preparing the way for the new king, Jesus, giving us a little motivation to change, would you say? Who wants to be uh, burned in unquenchable fire, huh? So he's trying to describe for us what this new kingdom is like that has broken in upon the world. But let me ask, does this sound like Jesus to you? Laying an ax to the tree, chaff being burned with unquenchable fire? Jesus is usually about mercy, not violent judgment. Hmm? John the Baptist knew God's kingdom was coming, but he didn't fully understand what the nature of that kingdom was. So he kind of goes all hellfire and brimstone here. 
particularly for the Pharisees and Sadducees, who, let's, let's admit it, needed to hear that. As theologians have pointed out, Jesus was not the Savior that anyone was looking for, including John. But he was the one that was needed. So, suddenly, John is face to face with Jesus, who has come to be baptized by John. Now, John knew right away that this was the king of the kingdom he'd been preaching about. And so John said, I need to be baptized by you, and yet you come to me? John had the same question we do, didn't he? Why was Jesus getting baptized? What's up with that? Anybody ever wondered that? Does Jesus really need this? Does he need to turn his life around? Baptism is for sinners who wish to repent, not Jesus. Well, let's see if Jesus' answer clears things up for us. He says to John, um, well, my my baptism is necessary to fulfill all righteousness. Well, that clears it up, huh? Does that clear it up for you? Yeah, me neither. To fulfill all righteousness. What does that mean? If I ask you what words you think of when I say the word righteousness, uh, what would you say? Any, any words come to mind? Anybody want to bark something out? Goodness. Goodness. Yeah, kind of along those, those lines, that's a, um, a, a very common response. Normally, we would associate the word righteousness with goodness, um, lofty moral and spiritual purity, qualities closely related to uh, perfection. Okay, so God is already... God's already righteous, isn't he? How does Jesus' baptism fulfill God's righteousness? The word righteousness means something different than what we think it does. It doesn't mean static qualities of perfection. It is a relational term. It means something very close to the word Emmanuel that Matthew used in the first chapter, which means God is with us. Righteousness, then, means not perfection, but love. And more specifically, specifically, it means the will of God to empty God's own self of power Become a servant, this is a new kind of power, power in a servant, become one of us. Why? Why? To bear with us and for us the weight of our broken and mortal lives. To share with us and for us the life and the love that comes from God. So Jesus' baptism establishes God's righteousness, i.e. God's solidarity with us in the human enterprise. And because of the righteousness of God who meets us where we are, we do not need to run from our humanity, our vulnerability, our brokenness, 
because that is where God has chosen to meet us. That is where we find God, paradoxically. God is right there when you think you are a godless son of a gun, helping you get through. The righteousness of God is that God is in that God-forsaken place this life sometimes gives to you, bringing you through it and into life. Now, this idea about God being in such places, such low places, is not assumed by everyone, including many, many Christians around us. Or, for instance, do you know the song American Pie by Don McLean? You know, bye-bye, Miss American Pie, drove my Chevy to the levee, and the levee was dry, and so on, so on. The song was about the day the music died. And it refers to the day that Buddy Holly died tragically in a plane crash in Iowa, specifically. The day the music died also symbolizes life. For all of us at times, right, when things go south in our heart and soul or in our world around us, or both, the day the music died. One of my favorite lines in, in the song is when he sings, and the three men I admire most, the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, they caught the last train for the coast the day the music died. You know, remember that line? Interesting. Think about that. So, the three persons of God's Holy Trinity, <laughs> they see how bad things are and they say, we're getting out of here. And you're left with this image of hard times in the heartland while God is going the opposite direction, reading a magazine on a train, thinking about the beach. Why would God mess with the heartache of a messed up creation when God didn't have to? There are echoes of American pie in our Christian world. For instance, many well-meaning Christians assume that if they are in a painful place in life, it must be partly because they deserve it. And I've heard this repeatedly from people. It must be because they've been a bad Christian or not had enough faith or something. The music died. God took the train to be with the righteous people who have their life together, not some schmuck like me. The task ahead, then, is to get my life in order so that God will like me again and be present for me again. Well, Matthew says otherwise in a big way. God's righteousness is that God meets you in those darker places and never abandons you, those very places when you think God is surely not here. Those broken places in our lives are holy ground. In this world, the day the music died happens over and over again, doesn't it? And God does not catch a train for the coast. Instead, we learn in Matthew, God the Father emptied himself of power, taking the form of a servant through his son, Jesus of Nazareth. And while he was baptized in the Jordan, the Father said, 
he was well pleased as the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus with the power of God unleashed in him, the power of God as a servant and as love. And that's what the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost did on the day the music died. So what does that have to do with your own baptism that you affirm today? Your baptism is an affirmation that you need not fret over your humanity, its ragged edges, and its deep fractures. That is where God meets you. It is holy ground, so don't live in fear. Open your eyes and your hearts. So to come full circle, is there any hope for our New Year's resolutions? after all my dreary thoughts. Well, the God who meets you in the humblest and most desperate dimensions of your humanity is also at work remaking you. In your baptism, you are a new creation in Christ that reorders your humanity to reflect the image of God. The reordering might come more slowly than you would like, but it is happening. It is promised. So yes, God has seen to it that you can and will change. We are being recreated from the inside out to be a servant, just like Jesus. Amen.